one third of homes are being bought by people under 37. And when you begin this journey, it can be a little bit scary. You know, where should I live when I first graduate? And knowing if you should buy a home, well, it really depends on a few different factors. Welcome to Getting Money Right, a show dedicated to helping you achieve financial freedom through education and inspiration, so you can be free to pursue your true life's purpose. We are your hosts, Leo Sabo and David Thompson, and on this episode, we're continuing our discussion about the best financial steps for a college graduate. These steps will actually be valuable for any of our listeners, but we especially want to congratulate all the graduates and give them a head start in their finances. So in the last two episodes, we've covered the first five tips for college grads to manage money like grown-ups. Number one was create your own bank accounts. Two, create your stability fund. Three, crush your student loans. Four, calibrate your credit. And five, clear out your tax debt. So in this last episode, we're going to touch on the last two, which is consider your future home. And seven, choose your investment strategy. That's right. So let's look at consider your future home. Uh, did you know that there is a National Association of Realtors study that says that 36% of home buyers are millennials or Gen Y? So they're 37 or younger. Mm -hmm. 36%, over wow. a third are being bought by millennials. Uh, I myself would be in that category and purchased a home uh, five years ago, give right. or take. Right. So uh, it, it makes perfect sense, but we are seeing a huge boom in the number of millennials that are purchasing homes mm -hmm. that are getting more and more ready along with Gen Y, the next gen. Uh, now, the next thing that's coming is you're going to see about 50% of the workforce being millennial in the next five to 10 years. So here we are, the college graduates, you're the future. This is where things are going. Yep. Uh, one third of homes are being bought by people under 37. And when you begin this journey, it can be a little bit scary. You know, where should I live when I first graduate? And knowing if you should buy a home, well, it really depends on a few different factors. One, where do you want to live? Uh, are you sure that you know you want to live there for a long time? Two, what's the lifestyle that you prefer? Do you want to be locked into a single location? Or do you want to be able to rent in downtown, you know, whatever major metropolis you're in? We're in Dallas and Fort Worth. Some people would love the lifestyle of living in a condo in downtown Dallas and having quick access to all the cool things that are right there. Mm -hmm. Or in downtown Fort Worth. If you're looking at a home, you're probably going to move out into the suburbs. So it's a lifestyle choice. Right. Uh, how stable is your future income likely to be? Right. If you're a contractor yeah. or a freelancer, it's very hard to purchase a home sure. if you don't have a stable income. And you probably don't want to because you may get pulled into another state or another country to do some really cool freelance gig that you wouldn't want to be stuck to a home. And then, you know is it okay to wait? Is renting throwing away money? All of these are questions that are running through the mind that ran through my mind when I first graduated from college. Mm -hmm. You know, what should I do? So I guess the question is, Leo, where, where do we even start if you're beginning this journey? Well, I mean, with anything else uh, that you're going to do when you make a financial decision, it always goes back to your budget. What can you actually do when it comes to this home? And I think there is a pressure sometimes from peers that once you become an adult, especially when you add a child to the equation, that a home is just something you do, that you buy a house and you settle down and, and you live this way. But I just I want to say that that's actually not true for everybody. So if you sometimes feel that pressure as a young adult 
that you should be buying a home, I just say resist that pressure. It's not something you need to do. It's something you should do when it makes sense for you. Mm, so the first thing is estimate how much down payment money you'll need. So a down payment is the percentage of the home price that you must pay at closing. The more you put down, the lower your mortgage payments will be. Some loans require you to pay 10 or 20% of the purchase price. Other loans designed for first-time homebuyers, such as an FHA loan, may only require a 3% down. So if you can make a 20% down payment on a home, that's actually preferred. You'll avoid paying private mortgage insurance, or PMI. And PMI is a special kind of insurance that lenders typically require you to pay when you borrow more than 80% of the value of a property, even if you have excellent credit. That's right, Leo. We definitely recommend 20% down if you can. Avoid the PMI. It doesn't benefit you at all. The insurance is only to benefit the lender, and it's an extra $75 a month or per 100000 Yeah. So, you know, yeah, or more. So it could be $150 a month per 200000 So and and it, and it varies based on the lender. But the overall thing is uh, we would love to see you put 20% down. Uh, that's not always going to be possible on a first-time home purchase. We're not demanding that you have to do 20% down. I think 10% would be appropriate. It puts you with some great equity in the home. So if you ever needed to sell it and move, you at least would not be going into debt to sell your home. Right. So I think 10% is safe on a first-time home purchase. I would avoid doing 3% down. And I just talked to a friend today that he said that he knew somebody was about to purchase a home on a 3% loan, mm -hmm. a FHA loan, and 3%, uh, I think it was like a $250,000 home. Well, yeah. 3% was like eight or nine grand. Hmm. And that ends up getting eaten up mainly by the closing costs and the loan fees and some other things that are tied in there. So then this person's basically borrowing almost the full yeah. value of the home and has zero equity in the home. That's a lot of risk because yes. what if they need to sell it and they need to pay closing costs to sell it again and they need to pay a realtor to sell it. Uh, they negotiate and now they end up with the closing costs. They end up with all the realtor fees and that's another three to 6% on top of the 250. They could go into debt to have to sell their home. Yeah. So I would not recommend 3%. I just don't think that's safe. I don't think it's a good way to get into a home. Uh, usually it is an indication that you're purchasing too soon. You definitely need to have uh, the stability fund. You know, make sure you've got that in place before you build your down payment fund. But even then, you probably want to do at least 10% in my mind. I would agree. I think it's a good, like you said, a good indication that you may be rushing to this. And I think there is, again, a pressure to buy a home as soon as possible, especially if you start having kids right away. But we've seen just a negative consequence of doing that too soon and how it eats up so much of your income when you buy too much home and it just leaves your budget shortchanged in the other areas. So you'll feel the stress. You'll have that home, but you'll be feel the stress in every other area of expense because the house will take such a huge percentage of your income. So we want to keep you safe and we hope that you would avoid that. Now, in the process of buying the home, earnest money is the good faith deposit you make on a home when you submit an offer. The customary amount varies by market, but might range somewhere from 1% to 3% of the offer price. If your offer is accepted, then the funds are applied toward your closing costs. So you don't lose it, but you do have to put this money down first. And if your offer is not accepted, your earnest money is returned to you. Yeah, so think about this. You want to have a little pool of money set aside as your earnest money. And what earnest means is that 
You know, you have good intentions. You're yeah. an earnest person. So when you give the seller earnest money, you're saying, hey, you can trust me. I earnestly want to purchase this home from you. I'm even going to give you 1% of the home value up front to let you know that I'm serious about this. And Ashley and I did this. Uh, we had a good pool of money. And when we were serious about buying our home, we put, I don't remember what the exact number was, but I want to say we put like 5,000 in earnest money or something like that. Mm -hmm. And we were saying, look, we have $5,000 cash. Right. That's what it's saying. We are, we are responsible people who can give you $5,000 today with the intention to purchase this home before we go into all the contractual pieces. But if for some reason it falls through, we get that 5,000 back. Right. But it just shows the home buyer that you're serious about this, that yeah. you earnestly intend to make that purchase. And so if you have a little bit bigger pool of money for your earnest money, that is great. I highly recommend it. Especially in a market where there's multiple competing offers. Yes. This might differentiate you from the rest. So it's a good idea. I just talked to a friend who was selling his home, and he said that when he was looking at the offers that he got, he looked at A, the earnest money, but B what type of loan the person was taking out. Right. If they were if they had 20% down to put on the house, that meant that they were going to definitely, you know, follow through and purchase the home. He sure. wasn't worried about the loan falling through. Right. But if they only had 3% and they were doing an FHA, he was actually worried then that the appraisal for the home, what the so a, an independent appraiser would come out, look at the home, do an appraisal on it. And if it didn't appraise for a high enough value of what the people wanted to borrow on that home, let's say it was a $200,000 home and he was selling it for 200, but the appraisal came in at 180, well then the FHA loan won't go through for all 200 and right. then the whole deal falls apart. Exactly. And so, so when you're going to purchase a home, if you have a bigger down payment, a decent set of earnest money, which again goes into the closing costs if you fulfill the transaction. Yeah, so it doesn't that hurt minimum you. Minimum 10% or more down right. payment. Right. So if you have that money ready and you're getting a good loan, that is very attractive to sellers. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, there are also closing costs, uh, and these are fees that you must pay at the settlement or the closing. They typically include a loan origination fee, appraisal, as David said, survey, inspections, attorney fees, taxes title insurance. I know there's a bunch of them, aren't there? And any other processing expenses. You should receive an estimate of your total closing costs from your lender so you're not caught by surprise. And I will add one other thing here. Some of these costs are negotiable. Yeah. So I would recommend that you ask your lender to give you a breakdown of the closing costs, then go through them. And anything you don't understand Say, hey, can we have a quick conversation and explain to me, what is this origination fee? What is this? So as you're going through it, I think it's important to look at these different expenses and find out what they are. There are some of them that they will charge you just because it's kind of an industry standard way of including the cost that they get for putting that loan together. But the big takeaway here is that some of these fees or costs can be either eliminated or reduced. So make sure that you ask the lender these and try to negotiate them down. Yeah, I remember when Ashley and I were purchasing our house for the first time, and we actually were looking at a home about a month or two ahead of when we had everything saved. Mm -hmm. And so we had kind of projected that we would have everything saved by, I think, December, and we started looking in October, and we ended up making a home purchase in November. So we were one or two months off of our total savings goal. And as we were going into the process, we kind of thought we had everything taken care of. 
But the major thing that we hadn't thought of or just hadn't saved for yet was the closing costs. And so we put 20% down on the home, Yeah. but we didn't have the money for the closing costs. So we had to steal from our furniture savings account because we'd saved up money to buy furniture. Yeah. But we used all the money to buy furniture. We used that on our closing costs. And so when we moved in, we moved our one-bedroom apartment of stuff into our four-bedroom home. And so it was a pretty bare place for the first yeah, couple months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, at least you didn't get into debt. Yes. That, that's yes. what's important. So good yeah. for you, though. Yeah, we were glad we had the furniture, you know, money yeah. off to the side. We called our home account, and we had that money there. So Yeah, but you bring up a good point. I mean, there are so many aspects to this process, and this is why we're trying to break it down for you, so that it prepares you for these transactions. Because it, it's a pretty big one, and you want to make sure you understand it all. So that's a number one. Number two is save your down payment in the right place. David, I want you to walk us through that. Yeah, well, so when you're saving your down payment, you do not want to put this money at risk. You're thinking, oh, I'm going to be saving ten, twenty thousand dollars to put as a down payment on a home. Uh, for Ashley and I, it was thirty-five thousand that we saved to put as a down payment on mm -hmm. our home. Yep. And initially, you're beginning to think, wow, well, if I put that into a, an account and a brokerage, and I invest it in some good growth stock mutual funds, mm -hmm. maybe it'll average, you know, five, ten percent over the next couple of years, and yep. it'll help me grow it. But in the market, anytime that you're going to be in the market for less than five years, it's too high of a risk. This is right. what we call medium-term savings. Uh, this is not long-term savings, not 10, 20, 30-year time horizon. This is a one to three-year horizon of you saving money for your down payment. Right. It might be a little bit longer, but in that it's case... It's typically less than five. Typically less than five. In that case, you want to have it in just a safe... Uh, high yield savings account. Basically, you know, again, go to Google and look at the top savings rates for different banks, find an online bank or put it where you put your emergency fund. And if you can earn two to two and a half percent on that money, just safely set into that account where you can access it when you need to, it should just be in a savings account. If you put it in the market, the market in any one to two year period could decline 10, 20, 30%. Yeah. So let's say that you had saved up like $30,000 for a down payment. Yeah. And then the market, half of that. yeah, let's say the market declines by 30%. You've just lost nine grand. Yeah. That's, That's scary. Then, then it's like, oh, great. I got to delay buying a house for another year while I keep saving. Yeah. In the meantime, mess. the price of home continues to rise. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so. Exactly. So, so this is what you want to be thinking through. It's medium term savings. You want to keep it in a safe place. It's FDIC insured. The average is maybe 2%. Uh, or whatever the going market rate is, you do not want to invest this money. Uh, that's a little bit too risky. Yeah. I mean, you could also put it maybe in a CD and get a little bit more, especially if you're not looking to buy. But the idea here is you want to be keep it liquid and you don't want to take risks. So whatever uh, helps you to accomplish that, just make sure that you're looking at it from that perspective and not risking too much of it and not locking it in so that if an opportunity comes to buy a home that's maybe in the price range, maybe even less than what you're planning on buying, then you you might be able to jump in and buy that home and you don't want to have that money locked up and uh, inaccessible. That's right. So you estimate how much down payment you'll need. Then you begin saving your down payment in the right place. Then you go and you get pre-approved for a mortgage. Right. You actually start talking to some lenders and saying, hey, based on my financial situation, 
Will you pre-approve me to mm-hmm. get a loan with you? Yep. And this allows you to go and make a purchase a lot easier. So once you're ready to become a homeowner, you've got good credit, you've got your down payment, you get this pre-approval through this process. Getting pre-approved, it tells you how much you can afford. Yeah. So if you're wanting to buy a home, you should know what somebody's willing to lend you. Exactly. And then Leo and I did a whole episode on home buying where we then said banks will often overlend to you. Mm-hmm. So you probably actually need to scale that back a little bit too. Don't think about what they'll lend. Think about what will fit into your budget. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it also tells a seller that you're a serious buyer who could close the deal quickly if necessary. Uh, this could be an advantage with a seller who needs to sell and close fast. That's right. So just because a bank pre-approves you for a certain amount, it never means you should borrow that whole amount. Right. We just we just want to remind you, uh, look at how much your monthly payment is. Look at the actual mortgage, how much the interest is, how much the property taxes is. Mm-hmm. If you end up having to pay PMI, make sure that that fits into the budget. Um, if insurance. Insurance. All of these pieces are going to be a part of what you spend every month on housing. So sometimes you'll put it into Google, oh, what's the mortgage? Well, the mortgage on this is very cheap. But when you add in taxes in your local municipality and you add in insurance, (laughs) and if you have to pay PMI, you add that in, all of a sudden it goes well beyond what your monthly budget can handle. Well, in certain markets, it almost doubles your payment. Yeah. It really depends, but it's it's a considerable amount, 40% or more. Uh, So if let's say you had a $500 payment, you could look for at least another $300 on top of that. Yeah. That's going to be just for the things we mentioned, insurance, property taxes, PMI, if it's applicable. Now, additionally, you'll have to pay utilities, maintenance, and perhaps some home association dues. So make sure you don't forget those. Those are going to be included in this cost of having and maintaining a home. So this is something that most people don't realize when they're purchasing their first home. They think, well, why should I be spending or wasting my money on rent when I can buy a house for just a couple hundred dollars more per month? Yes, but you're also heating now and cooling a much bigger place. You're having to take care of the maintenance yourself instead of calling a landlord when something breaks. So the cost is going to be significantly higher than what you're paying in rent. Yeah. And you just have to be prepared for that. Yeah. I just looked up a mortgage calculator. Let's say you did a $200,000 home at a 4% interest rate over 30 years. The actual mortgage is about $950 a month. Mm -hmm. But when you add in insurance, another 200 bucks a month, maybe, then you add in tax, probably more, right? You add in taxes, another two, three hundred dollars a month. I'm trying to think it's actually more than that. Probably definitely here. Yeah, 400 a month. So you add in another 400 for that 200 plus for insurance, then you need to save a little bit for, you know, HVAC issues for fence issues for hail damage to the roof. You're looking at needing to have $1,500 or more probably $1,700 in your budget for housing, uh, even though the mortgage itself was only a 1000 bucks, give or take. So be aware of that. These are the costs that are included. Just thinking, oh, I've been throwing away rent by spending $1,000 a month. No, because when you get to the home, it could be $1,700 a month. uh, And you should need to be aware of that. Yeah, just don't make the mistake of buying too much house. Yeah. If you consider and calculate all the costs that are associated with house buying, and then you make sure that it fits comfortably within your housing budget, you'll be fine. That's right. So the fourth piece of this is just to be a savvy negotiator. So in real estate, everything is negotiable. Um, be interested, but don't be too eager. Don't fall in love with the house as soon as you see it. Wait until you've closed the deal. Right. You know, t- be looking across the market and don't don't rush this. Yeah, and I would also say this: there are 
more homes out there, not just the one you're looking at, and more will come on the market over time. So if you emotionally approach this decision, you're more than likely going to overpay or and you're going to be emotionally taxed because especially in a, a hot market where there's not a lot of inventory and people are bidding, you know, you have multiple bidders for every single home. If you get emotionally involved in that, I remember I had a, a couple that I was talking to and they had 17 homes that they had bid for yeah. in like a two-month period. 17 wow. homes. Every single one of them went over price and, you know, over, over the asking over price. asking yeah. price. Wow. And I was like, whoa, that, that, I mean, that's going to take a toll on you. So if you're emotionally involved in that, I can't imagine. So don't get emotionally attached until you know that the house is yours. And look at it as a transaction Sure, you're going to fall in love with it. You're going to enjoy it. All of that. Sure, it's got to meet all those criteria. Just don't let it emotionally uh, drive you to make that deal because you're not going to be a very good negotiator if right. you're emotionally involved. Right. Uh, and and in this process, realize it's going to take some time. You've got to do the down payment. You've got to save. Um, it's okay to be patient here. Uh, you don't need to rush this because you're going to be in this home for hopefully a minimum of five years. Right. That's the way that you'll really break even over time uh, and then begin to actually make money on the deal. So plan to be there for five years. Uh, Most sellers are going to expect that you negotiate. Uh, They're going to expect that you negotiate the purchase price or repairs or on closing costs and say, hey, will you pay some of the closing costs or will you lower the price or will you throw in something? A friend just sold his home. He threw in the really nice... Uh, playground that he had built for his kids. Mm-hmm. He said, I'll, I'll keep this on the property as part of the negotiation. Instead of you guys getting a discount on the house, I will allow you to keep this playground. And the next family really wanted that playground because they loved it for their kids. Yeah. And so everything is negotiable. All sure. these little pieces. Ashley and I negotiated and, and had them throw in their refrigerator because we wanted to keep the refrigerator because we didn't have one. You know. Yeah. So all these yeah. little things, um, just be aware that you can negotiate on them. Yeah. So before the closing, you should receive a settlement statement form. It's a, called a HUD-1 form from the real estate agent uh, and the closing attorney or the title company. One of those will provide that. It's very important that you review it carefully, ask questions about charges you don't understand, and make any necessary changes. Uh, there will be a stack of documents for you and the seller to sign at closing And my recommendation is that you get those documents ahead of time so you have time to read through them. Otherwise, you'll have to take the time to read them at the closing. And that may take a long time. And they're really not expecting you to read them at closing. The first time I bought a home, there was so much paperwork. And it it was kind of overwhelming. And I'm signing. I'm thinking, I hope I'm signing. And that everything (laughs) that my lender and my realtor are saying is, is correct. Well, here's what I found out. Our first home was an FHA home. So we did go the wrong route. We we went with an FHA loan. But what I found out about three years later after the home value continued to increase and yeah. I, I paid down some of it is that once I got over that 20%, I said, hey, the PMI, the private mortgage insurance, I want to drop it off. So I called the company and told them, I said, I'm, you know, my house is now valued. Right. I need you to drop this off. And they're like, sorry, FHA loan, it never comes off. It's there wow. for the life of the loan. Yep. So the only way we could do that is to refinance. And again, there's more closing And then costs you got to pay again, else. right. Yeah. So just something to understand is you have to understand the paperwork. You understand what you're signing. Just because someone's telling you something doesn't mean they're telling you everything. So it's really important that you read through it. And again, these professionals that are helping you, To them, this is just old hat. They see it every day. They understand the language. 
So by all means, ask them, what does this mean? Right. So that you understand. Well, in your realtor, they don't have a benefit to slow the process down. Mm-hmm. They no. want to crank these out as fast as possible. Well, none of them do. They all none want of to them do, do as right. many as the these The title company, right, the appraiser, the home inspector, all these people just want to move it forward quickly so they can get to the next job. Exactly. And so they didn't have any incentive to tell Leo, oh, by the way, this is an FHA loan. By the way, you know, five years from now, when you've got 20% equity in the house, you still won't be able to avoid private mortgage insurance. Mm-hmm. They had no incentive to tell him that. So doing a little bit of research in advance or working with somebody that you really trust and you can even show them your financial situation a little bit and let them work with you and understand, hey, am I? how am I able to get out of private mortgage insurance over time? What is the best way to negotiate? You really want to work with somebody that you trust a lot and do a lot of your own research, which listening to this episode will give you, you know, 90% of the things you need. And I just say, listen to it again, go back and listen to our other episodes on buying a house. Yes. Um, and, and dig into those details. Uh, they're excellent. I mean, I, I went back and listened to them the other day. And I was just thinking, oh, my goodness, there's so much here that most people don't think about when they're purchasing a home for the first time. And we couldn't cover it all in this episode. But we wanted to give you a quick overview and just help you be thinking about the future. That was the desire of this episode for college grads is to think about the future of purchasing a home. And it is in the future. It's not next week. It's not next month. Um, It was episode 24 and 25, where we did a two-part series on buying a home. And we even ran through more of the numbers there. So check that out. Yep. So let's touch the last tip to college grads, and which is contribute to your retirement savings now. You know, the earlier you start saving, the less you'll need to save over time. And that's because the magic of compounding allows you to earn interest on your interest, and that gives you a lot more bank for your buck. So let's say that you begin investing $200 a month from your first job out of college, just $200 a month. You sign up for the 401k retirement plan, you put in 200 bucks, and then you never increase your contribution. Even though you get raises, you know, even though you get promoted, and you only do 200. And you get an 8% rate of return, which we'd love to see you getting into mutual funds that could average 9, 10, and 11%. But let's say you're conservative and get 8%. After 40 years, you'd have over $700,000 or just about 700,000. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is very impressive considering yes. <laughs> that you only put in 104,000 yeah. over those 40 years. You put in 200 bucks a month. That's like 2,400 a year. Right. Uh, that's that's I mean simple over a career of 40 years you begin sure. to put in just 200 bucks a month. That's a hundred thousand dollars that turned into seven hundred thousand dollars. You'll buy more more of that in cars probably over your lifetime. Oh, absolutely, you know? so absolutely. It's not a huge amount, but yes. because of the compound interest adding up year after year, you can see how you can get that seven hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, you do that from age twenty five to age sixty five, and there you go. You can retire uh, now. Seven hundred thousand. That's the tip of the iceberg. Leo and I are going to recommend that you eventually get to the place where you're doing 10% of your income and then hopefully 15% of your income every mm-hmm. month. Uh, so that's a whole other piece, but just 200 bucks a month. Yeah. It's important that you start now. That's what we're trying to say. Yes, don't put that's this it. off because if you put it off, you're losing some of those years that could bring you to that $700,000 or more figure. Yes. If you wait five years and say, well, I'm going to wait and pay off my student loans or I'm going to wait and buy a house and then I'm going to... Listen, you're losing time, so invest something. We're talking about $200 a month. You can find that in your 
budget and you can you know, maybe sacrifice something for a while for the greater good down the road. But if you wait, you will regret it. I can guarantee you That's that. Right. I, we, That's my right. wife and I waited longer than we should have. I wish we wouldn't have. And this is why we're giving you this advice. Don't wait. Start sooner. Start now. And you won't regret it. That's right. And do it in tax-advantaged retirement accounts whenever you have the opportunity. Mm -hmm. This allows you to pay a little bit less in taxes. Uh, and if you're lucky enough to have a 401k at your job, do the 401k. Especially if, one that matches. Yes. If it matches, you want to get the match. Absolutely. And you want to start now. At Gateway, where I work, um, if you put in 1%, they will match 3%. So right. they'll triple it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I always recommend that people put in at least 1%, 1% even yes. if they're paying off debt and for every quarter you put in, you get a dollar. Yes. How can you lose? Come on. That's a huge win. So just be aware of that. And then uh, as you grow in your financial acumen and you're able to save more, then, you know, begin saving 5%, 10%, 15% of every paycheck. Uh, if you've got a 403B, which would be for a nonprofit or a 457, a lot of government entities have that. Don't pass up the opportunity to do tax-advantaged accounts. Uh, you could just save this on your own at a brokerage. You could go down sure. to Fidelity, to Charles Schwab, to Vanguard, to uh, fill in the blank, anywhere, right? right? And you could open up an account and just begin investing with them. But as your investment grows, you have to pay taxes on the growth. So you are going to have capital gains tax that is going to reduce how quickly it grows over time. And now it's not a huge amount, but it affects it over time. If you do it into a retirement account, though, and you don't have to pay those taxes, uh, you can, again can do it at Charles Schwab, Fidelity, Vanguard, yeah. any of these same places, TD Ameritrade. But you just put it inside of an IRA, Individual Retirement Arrangement. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, then you don't pay taxes as it grows. Uh, it's also great if you pay taxes on it today with a Roth IRA, mm -hmm. and then you don't pay taxes on it when you take the money out. $700,000 without any taxes, um, it, that'll go a long, long way when you're in retirement. Yep, I agree. And we really do go a lot deeper into this topic of saving and investing in episodes 11, 12, and 13. And recently, we've just done an episode on biblically responsible investing. So consider that as well. And our recommendation is really that you just, again, make it a priority, but learn more about investing because some of this is plug and play, but you should have at least the basic understanding of how it works and how to get the most out of it. You know, David and I have talked about this a lot, but you want to make sure that you're first putting in that 401k matching and making sure that you're getting the most out of that, then maybe you max out an, a Roth IRA and then maybe even a, an additional IRA if you decide to do that, you know, to go beyond that. But our, our desire for you is that you would just do it. Just start today. Just start, just start today. today. Even if you're it. not 100% sure of what you're doing, just just go to your HR department, open up, if, you have a, if you're at a company, open up the 401k or 403b mm -hmm. and just say, hey, I want to start doing something now. And, and start doing, if you don't know anything else, just start with an index fund. It'll yep. be the S&P 500. It'll be the 500 market index. Start there because that will, that will match kind of the general stock market. Yeah. And if you are an employer that has a 401k program, more than likely they'll have a representative that goes along with a company that's yes. providing that, that can answer some of your basic questions. But really, it's just about being committed to a number, yes. to saying, I'm just going to pull this out of my pay before I even see it. 
and you just get used to not seeing it. Yeah. And if you start at 1% and maybe increase it at 1% every year for the next 10, 15 years, you'll get there. Yeah. But again, start today. You have to, have to, have to go back and listen to episode 11, 12, and 13. If you haven't started investing, you will really enjoy it. It'll give you a great foundation. And it's stuff that you just won't hear anywhere else. Mm -hmm. It's really going to impact your finances. Um, I, I mean, I just... I'm so grateful that you guys spend time with us. We love sharing this with y'all. Mm -hmm. I hope that you will grab this episode, rate it five stars, give it a thumbs up. It means so much when you click on the like button for each episode. If you have an iTunes account, then give it five stars and leave a comment. Those comments mean a ton. I actually went back and I pulled probably 30 comments and I put them on to the webpage under stewardshippastors.com mm. under resources and podcasts. Cool. Just so people can see, look at all the great feedback that's come through. Yeah. And some of my favorite episodes are listed in there. So that's on stewardshippastors.com. And, and then, you know, I would say, check out the book, Jesus on Money. It's coming out soon. You can pre-order it now. The more copies you buy, the cheaper it is. Uh, go over to leosabo.com. Uh, actually, go to Facebook right now, as soon as you finish this episode, and look up Leo, look up myself, shoot us a message and add us as a friend. Uh, go to LinkedIn, add us on there. We'd love to connect with you. Uh, we'd love for you to share this episode through Facebook or Instagram. You'll see that Leo and I are on Instagram, Leo Sabo, David Thompson. Go to Instagram, type in our names, look for us. Uh, you'll see Getting Money Right in our profiles. You'll see it all across. Share that with somebody. You know, Repost it, put it in your stories. Um, let somebody else know about what we're doing. It, it just means a lot to us. Uh, I, I can tell you that um, probably in the past month or so, I've just run into so many people that I had not even met before. I mean, let alone the people that I know are listening, mm -hmm. but people I've not even met before that have started listening or shared an episode. And when they told me that, I mean, it just made my day because yeah. Leo and I come and we sit and we, we, we'll get together for three or four hours at a time to put together these episodes and record a couple and make sure that we're getting you great quality content and that's, that's us wanting to just serve you and give you good, high-quality material. And it means a lot when you turn around and share that with somebody uh, or you invest by buying one of the Jesus on Money books or you invest by going on Leo's website, checking out some of his courses. That is such a huge thing for us. Uh, we really appreciate it. We love spending time with y'all. And you know we look forward to having you join us next time so that together we, we can, can keep, keep getting, getting money right. right. Really, it's just about being committed to a number, yes. to saying, I'm just going to pull this out of my pay before I even see it. And you just get used to not seeing it. Yeah. And if you start at 1% and maybe increase it at 1% every year for the next 10, 15 years, you'll get there. Yeah. But again, start today. Mm -hmm.